Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and emotional well-being and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that human beings are friendly, tribal animals. We like doing things together. We like hanging out together. We like cooperating with one another. We like being neighborly. In fact, to the extent possible, we enjoy one another's company. At the very same time, we have to acknowledge, it's almost our responsibility to acknowledge, that there is a very small percentage of us who are extremely different. These people are predators. They're avaricious, and they believe in a very different philosophy of life. I refer to them as social Darwinists. They believe in the survival of the fittest across the board, and everybody else is down the line. These are the kind of people who would turn us back to subjects from being citizens, and that was a battle we fought over 200 years ago. It is our duty as American citizens to watch and be careful about our fragile democracy and our republic. You know, I was brought up to think, you know, we live in a democratic republic. We're the pioneers in it to a a certain extent, after Greece and Rome, perhaps, but certainly 1,700 years later. And I believe it was like forever. We'll always have this. But I realize now It's something we have to maintain like a beautiful garden. We cannot just expect it to last forever because there were forces, there are forces who would take our democracy and our republic away from us. And that is a very real concern. In the words of my hero, Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, I have the privilege of interviewing Charles Bush. He's an American philosopher and educator who created prominent schools in Taos, New Mexico, and Mendocino, California, and served for 12 years as the director of the Fort Bragg Senior Center. Presently, he and his wife, Sakina, are actively involved as pioneers in the National Sustainable Farming Movement. During Charles's entire 60-plus-year career, he has carefully and responsibly self-experimented with psychedelic medicines. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Charles. Absolutely a delight to, to be with you, Richard. And uh, hooray, here we go again. Another, uh, another conversation into the depths. Into the depths we go. You, you've had an extraordinary working career, including, as I said, your work at the Fort Bragg Senior Center. And I know one of the things that you're very proud of in terms of that work is the lunches that you typically served. 
Remind us, how many lunches did you typically serve to seniors each day? We served uh, uh, between 100 and 150 people every day in our dining room and sent about 100 meals out uh, with volunteers from the community to be hand-delivered to, to uh, the homes of elders who couldn't get out to eat. So a bunch of meals, thousands, over the period of time, close to a million meals. It was, it's an astounding, you know, in just that short 12-year period. Just close to a million meals. <laughs> Phenomenal. And what about these purple buses that we hear about? Tell us a little about the Senior Center Purples. You know, we have to replace the bus. We we run, uh, uh, it's a buck a ride, basically, uh, bus service all over the whole North Coast here uh, for any senior. And uh, uh, that that program is administered by the state of California Department of Transportation. So you have to replace those buses every two or three years because they're on the road from 8 o'clock in the morning until 4.30 every, every day of the week, except Saturdays and Sundays, unfortunately. So... Um, that was just, uh, you know, that was a constant. And when I, I was about two years into my being, that was time to replace a bus. And and so we ordered a bus and, and I called the folks over at MTA and Ukiah and, and said, what color do the buses come in? And he laughed and he said, well, everybody just gets them white. And I said, yeah, well, what colors do they come in? And uh, he said, any color you want. I said, okay, get us a purple bus, okay? Ah. And he laughed and he said, what in the world are you thinking of? And I said, you know, if you're driving a purple bus around the community, in two days, everybody on the coast is going to know that that's the senior bus. And that's exactly how it worked. And, and so our, even though we only, we only got to have one purple one, but just the fact that it was purple and it was for old people was such a juxtaposition of perspective um, that it made the bus 10 times more visible than it would have been otherwise. And that was a good thing. Does every uh, county or city have a senior center? No, uh, they don't. Um, there's, uh, you know, I'm not sure exactly how many there are in California. I think well over, well, several hundred in California. But every community doesn't have one. And, and uh, they're not as uh, vigorous as they might have been. I think other institutions are beginning to take their place. We're aging a lot later. And so there, there, there's some real shifting going on in the, in the senior business. You know, I, I basically taught uh, late teenagers, high school and college students all my life while I was designing schools and operating schools. And the senior center just came as a, an afterthought. My, my parents died when I was young. I'd have grandparents. So I'd, by the time I got here at age 65, I had never been in the company of old people or never known any elders intimately because I was always with young people or my own staff. So that was, and I came here to retire and then, the, you know, the Great Recession hit. And uh, like many, um, economically things changed. And so the Senior Center just came as an accident. And it was like an incredible gift because I, I worked with young people at the front end and then I got to work with old people and watch them die. I mean, I was there 12 years. And, and so, you know, a quarter of that population died sometime during that 12-year that period. That was the piece that was missing in my life, and it was an incredible completion of a kind of experience for me. So that was a very strange but a very wonderful experience. Of course, you were on the board there and, and helped move that, that center along, and that, so you understand what that one was like. But for me, it was a completely novel experience. It was the strangest thing I'd ever done, and I grew to love it. And, and because I had never known old people until, you know, it was about 
fourth or fifth day, I was walking around serving meals in the, in the dining room. And I went back to my office and I went, you know, those people are all, they're about the same age I am. And that was, I think, the first time that I realized that I too was older and older. I was, I was getting there. And that was the point at which, um, as they died, I began to notice that I was their age. And so for me too, I was in the end game of my life. I didn't know how long it was going to be, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, but nevertheless, the end game. So it was an incredible gift. An incredible gift. And I can remember well seeing you actually as the director of the center, serving food, bussing dishes, running around, saying hello to the different people at the tables, and telling me how, how frequently people sat at the same tables every day and got to know each other and socialized. Community. It's that, it's that thing you said at the, at the beginning. I... I think it's not just that we like community and are drawn to community. I think I think that, that it it is our essence. We 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 bunch up. Um, I think e- even today, our kind of the, the nuclearization of our families and the and the uh, age separation of our families um, has tended to disguise how much we actually thrive in community in all the school situations. Uh, they were not live-in schools, but 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 the first task in a school is to build a thriving, completely intimate, totally connected community, and um, we would all like to live that way. And and I, I've been fortunate over probably three quarters of my adult life, I have lived not in a nuclear family setting, but in some kind of communal setting of one kind or another, quite a variety of them. But but it seems like our natural state to me. It seems like the natural state. And this community of elders at the senior center that you associated with for 12 years, it's a unique group because while all of us are dying from a certain perspective, they're the seniors, or we seniors, I should say, are obviously much closer to dying (laughs) than people at various other decades right exactly so exactly for 12 years you got to hang out with the people who are the closest to dying of all the decades and what can you tell us about them and what particularly can you tell us about their fears and anxieties and how often did you see that here's two really striking things one one of them is when we get old, we lose some of our capacity, some of us faster and some of us slower. Um, that loss of capacity is is kind of like an early warning notice. It says, oh, by the way, this is going to wear out. This isn't just going to go on forever. Most of us have uh, received during our, our growing up days and our family days and midlife, um, we've received some kind of instruction about dying, but mostly in the, in the form of religion and stories. Uh, religion kind of has the inside track on stories about dying and what happens afterwards, if anything, and and what the point of it all is. And, and all of that works pretty well, but by and large, not everybody, but, but, but I, what I saw was that the majority of people, when they really got up into their late sixties and through their seventies, while some people still managed to maintain a, a, a close connection with, the religious stories of their childhood and growing up, 
I would say a, a much larger majority of people continued to kind of honor those, but there was a sense in which we all really recognized that the experience we were moving toward was deeper and beyond any of the stories or philosophies or concepts about life and death and life after death and transition and so on. We, we as, as, as culture for literally millennia, we, we people have been, have been working with stories about some kind of a continuation of life and what that means and, and, and what it's like. But my experience with most people, when they get really right up to or fairly close to dying, meaning that they're feeling their infirmity fairly strongly, they realize that it's something they're going to have to do along, alone. Nobody's really going to help them, and they're going to have to invent the process and that they haven't really got a clue how to do it. Because for the most part, we don't hang out with the dying. I mean, you know, we in, in general, people tend, by and large, to die in the hospital, hooked up to machinery and isolated from community. And so the most momentous ending of our sojourn on the planet uh, is the place where nowadays the methodology of, of disease treatment and dying means that dying happens out of the most natural context. Uh, realistically, it seems to me, I realize that there, there's care issues, but, but realistically, when somebody, you know, when we make a new one, when we make a new baby, our culture is finally getting smart enough to go, well, you should get at least six months of leave. And, and, and we're just gradually getting around to that. I think that when, when somebody is approaching dying, if you can make a good guess that you're a year, a year away from dying, all the, all the critical people in your community and your family, your close people, they should all get dying leave for as long as it takes for you to die. And you should move in and be taken care of by the people who love you and, and you're loved by. And, and um, then dying would become a real event for all of us instead of a tucked away secret that more often than not is marked by a certain kind of dismay and confusion on the part of those who mostly watch but don't actually participate in the day-to-day -day life of the end game, the dying game. So, so you're saying that a designated member of the family perhaps would be the person who would be given dying leave? Oh, I think I think the whole family should get leave. I mean, you know, we're we're the we're the wealthiest we're the wealthiest people who this is the wealthiest time for all of us anywhere on the planet. We know that. I mean, we have, we have enough money and wealth and ability to do pretty much anything we want. Wouldn't it be marvelous if if when somebody hits that time where they're going, "Wash, well, I'm I'm going to die pretty soon." Gradually, we release as many of the family and community to spend as much time with them as possible. And when you know, lots of times we know uh, we don't all just slip off in the middle of the night. We know that we're, that that it's on its way. At that point, everybody in the family should get free leave and come home and and cook and gather and tell stories and and live out the dying, because then the prospect of dying wouldn't be the damnedest, most bizarre idea in our entire lifetime. It would be just as natural. It's just like birthing. I mean, you know, we, we do tend to gather somewhat for birthings and new ones. We ought to be gathering the same way for old ones. Wouldn't that, be, wouldn't that just be a marvelous kind of thing? It would change who we were and who we are as a culture, I think.
it would be a marvelous thing and it would change who we are. Because as you're talking, I'm picturing the seniors that come that came to your lunches at the Fort Bragg Senior Center and how many of them live alone or how many of the people that you delivered food to are living alone somewhere. And I'm wondering, you know, how do they go about dying and do they die all alone? And what a sad situation that must be to be all alone in your house or your trailer or wherever you're living and you know you're dying and you don't even have someone there with you to say goodbye to. In fact, in, in fact, I think uh, this is such a, I mean, when, when you describe it that way, you really put, you know, you put your finger right on the, 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 the truth about dying. And that is that for most old people who die, we have that a Vegas idea what it's like because nobody's there. I mean, if we just stop and think about that, how, how many people have you spent the last month, six weeks, two months with on a, on a regular daily basis while they died bit by bit. How many people have you held hands with or embraced with or sat by the bedside with or read to while they were dying? How many hours have you spent in the company of somebody's dying? And, and the answer for most of us is not hardly at all. And so it's not any wonder that dying is such a mysterious and semi-terrifying, semi-confusing phenomenon because we tidally tuck people away and we don't even know what goes on with them because none of us are there most of the time. So when somebody says, what's it like to die alone? I go, well, by definition, we don't know, do we? It might be horrifying. It might be wonderful. I don't know because by definition, all those folks, and it was a lot of them, those folks who basically die alone are remain an utter mystery to us. The process remains a mystery to us. That's why it's so hard for us to think about because, you know, it's like, it's like you see something three times in your life and you're supposed to have some great, wonderful wisdom about it. Doesn't make any sense, of course. I've been practicing clinical psychology for 57 years at least. I've seen a wide variety of cases, I'm very happy to say. This issue that we're talking about, I know very little about. I don't have the experience, just like you said. I'm one of everybody who does not have experience. I've never spent several days with somebody dying. I've been with uh, a friend of mine right at the very end, but I got there, you know, I flew in, and he was already, as you say, in a hospital. Uh, this is, it's, it's quite a topic. And in the senior center, did people talk to you about their dying, about their transition, Charles? Yes. Uh, when, when it was clear um, or likely, I mean, it, it, it's you know, one of the interesting things about, about disease and dying and, and dying as, a, as an elder who's suffering some of the, the changes that, that you go through physically, one of the things that I notice most of all is that you're just fine albeit diminished in some respects. And if you're paying attention and, and putting good time and practice in, yeah. along with being diminished in some sense, there are many things that are, are become more acute. If, you pay, if you're willing to pay attention, when you get old, a whole lot of stuff gets clearer, stronger, more enjoyable, more exciting, more interesting. But you have to keep working at it. You can't just let it go. 
what would happen very often is that somebody would be going along just fine, and I would notice part of the reasons that I, part part of the reason that I personally serve plates of food to almost every table at lunch every single day. Uh, my staff and sometimes even some of the board members go, well, that's a waste of time. We're going to hire you to, to be a waiter in the dining room. I would always say, that's the one place I see everybody and touch everybody and talk to everybody. I can tell you day by day from the depth of the wrinkles in their face and the smell of them and the the, the carefulness that they're moving with more or less on any given day. That's that's where all the action was. That was the most important single place for me to be. I this, I can't even imagine being a, a, a director of a senior center and not physically serving the actual food to the people and getting right. You know, when you serve somebody, you have to lean over, you get your face about a foot and a half or two feet away from them and you go, hi, how are you today? And if you pay attention with all your senses and with your heart and sensibilities and intuition, they answer you. Uh, and and so you get that answer every single day. So in 12 years, I became an intimate with several thousand people. And among them, several hundred of them died during the 12 years. Most of the time, the report, when there was a transition from the diminishment of norm to the beginning of the actual process of letting go, somewhere close into that, that transformation point, somebody would express a really simple thing to me. And they'd almost always say the same thing. It's just hard to keep going. It's, I'm just kind of tired now. And it didn't matter what, what, they, were, what they were suffering from, what the disease was or what was going on. And, and it, 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 I heard it so often that I learned that when somebody told me that, usually we were six weeks, maybe uh, several months, or sometimes even less than that away from them actually leaving. So that's an interesting thing. There, there, I think there is a, we, you, we struggle with aging anyway because of the diminishment. Because our society creates an expectation that the diminishment is not balanced by wonderment and an increase in sensitivity, we tend not to notice that that's happening. But when we cross that margin where we go, oh, this is the part. I'm, I'm, going, I'm off the sled now. I'm heading down. This is, uh, you know, or up, depending what you think about it. Um, <laughs> Good catch. We, we know. We know. And because because the, the body and the being kind of says, okay, okay. And most people... At the senior center, at least, the one thing that was important to them was getting there for lunch as long as they could, till they absolutely couldn't anymore. Because somehow, for the most part, they knew that when the actual withdrawal from that lunch table community happened, there wasn't going to be community anymore, and they weren't going to get to die in community. Well, can tell. We know, kind of. A lot of us do. Not everybody, but, you know, a lot of us do. And one of the things that stood out for you was when they made the comment about fatigue, about getting very tired. Yeah. Yes. Too tired. That was, that was almost universal. I mean, it was there was there was just this, just this this awareness that um, probably wasn't going to go on for a great deal longer. I will remember that and tuck it away so that when I get to that place of fatigue, <laughs> I'll know what it means. 
Yes, me too. Me too. Yeah, that's really a that's well. a very nice little uh, measure measuring stick you're offering us. And tell us about their sharing their emotional state because in my interviews with people who deal with transitions and people who work in hospice, they tell me that a high percentage of those who are transitioning suffer from anxiety and fear. They, Of course, the people who have religion, many of them are afraid that they're going to go to hell, as you said before, down, because you know everybody has sinned in some way. None of us are perfect. So you have people thinking, you know, afraid of death because of where they'll go. Others are afraid of the uncertainty. Others are afraid of just afraid of, of, of the unknowing. I guess that's uncertainty. And what can you tell us about your experience with that, with people's fears of transitioning? And to what extent were they able to share that with you? Richard, I, if I can, I want to um, I want to bring in um, what got this long conversation started, which were um, psychedelic nourishment, <laughs> psychedelic foods, uh, because the connection between good dying and good drug taking is intimate and essential. Does, I'm not saying everybody needs to prepare for death by taking drugs. Although it is interesting that most of us, if we have any pain, uh, drug ourselves out in order to prevent the pain. Some of if, us... One second, if you don't mind me commenting, when you say drugs, do you mean what I call medicines? Yes, yes. I'm talking very specifically about two categories of drugs. One of them, um, what for one of them, the most used word, psychedelics, LSD... Uh, mescaline, uh, psilocybin, so so okay. cactus or mushrooms or the synthesized one, LSD. And then the other family is MDMA, which is a, a, a somewhat newer drug, and it is not psychedelic in the ordinary sense. But I want to link both of those to the pre-dying experience because they both link in such a, an extraordinary way, and they both address the source of the two deepest fears that are connected with death. It's a very strange thing to me that, that you know, I, I first took psychedelics in my, in my mid-20s and uh, continued throughout my life. First took MDMA about uh, 15 years later, continued bit by bit all through my life. Here's the, here's, here's the point of those two psychedelic or psychological or psychic nourishments. Psychedelics absolutely authenticate for you the existence of kinds of consciousness and content of consciousness and meaning and meaningfulness of consciousness. All four of those things, whether you believed in them or not, whether you thought this ordinary, everyday, flesh and blood Charles was the limit of it. Didn't really matter. It doesn't matter what your religious experiences are. I mean, it would be affected by. But 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 the substance, the nourishment itself, makes you go, "Oh my gosh, that was so small." When I thought was the the total extent of life and consciousness and emotion was so tiny. It was. It's like a little corner of the map. There's this gigantic map, and in a lifetime, 
or 10 lifetimes or a thousand lifetimes. I couldn't even begin. I, there, there are regions to explore that I don't even know about. And every time I psychedelically nourish myself, I got another corner of the map down and I went to a different place and had different experiences and met different beings. And, you know, it was incredibly why I went back and did it over and over again. Why everybody, why millions, hundreds of millions of people have done it is because it's like pulling the veil away and you go, oh, where I am is really cool, but it's only a corner and it's gigantic and it is accessible to something in me when I'm psychedelically nourished. It's me. I'm having the experiences, but where I am inside the experience is different than where I am in my everyday insideness of my experience. So thus what happens is I go, well, death has got to be an adventure because I know that there's a multitude of kinds of consciousness and a multitude of ways of being yourself in those consciousnesses because I've visited them and been to them and, and explored them. It's not an accident that Aldous Huxley, once he discovered psychedelics, when he was dying, he died high on LSD. And so, and that's, you know, this is a man who was brilliant and an explorer and he got it. And, 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 you know, there's thousands, thousands and thousands of us who, who have joined members. So basically the psychedelic have makes you go, your little life and experience as wonderful as it is, is tiny compared to what is accessible. And I don't need to describe it or try to authenticate or something. I just, I just say, well, find yourself a, a, a good guide and a good circumstance and, do a little study and learning. And if you want to go to other places, you can, nobody can keep you out of that other kind of consciousness, nor is there only one range. There's a multitude of ranges that can be explored infinitely. And so the idea of this consciousness stopping stops being terrifying. How can you be terrified when it's already stopped? And I found that there's just other wonderful stuff going on. So, so that's the first thing. Fear of death declines as a sense about the immensity of consciousness, awareness, awakeness expands. I can't tell you where and how it is or all of that kind of stuff, but I can certainly tell you that it is because I've been there. And so if you say, well, you're just imagining, and I go, it's kind of like, you know, have you ever been to New York? And you go, well, no. And I go, well, I have, it's real, it's there. Want to go, get in the car, follow this map. You can go and you can find out. So that's the first thing is it's hard to be afraid of death when you've already been not in this life, but in another kind of consciousness or other kinds of consciousness. That's the first thing. Now, the second thing is we've also been given this other drug called MDMA. MDMA is uh, completely astounding. Here's an experience I've watched many, many times. I've watched two people married, um, have a good life. It's gotten maybe a little stale. There's some stuck places. And they both are very aware that despite the intimacy and constancy of their life together, there are large areas where they still hold. They, I can't tell you the truth about everything because I'm afraid that you would judge me and reject me and I would lose my dyad and it would be terrible. And, and I have some things I would like to talk to you about, but I'm scared to death about doing it because you might get angry and not love me anymore. And then where I would, would I be? And so you eat that little pill, that little MDMA pill, and... Your partner says, you know, you're high for a while and you've gotten accustomed to territory. And your partner says, you know, there's something that's just driven me nuts for the last 20 years. Can I talk to you about it? And instead of, instead of this, 
sure, I'll, I'll, I'll listen. Instead of that, you go, well, of course you can. And, and they look at you like, okay. And then they tell you something, which is, would have been either devastating or unhearable so that you would have had to defend against that's not really what that's not how it actually works it really works like this and you're mistaken about blah 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 blah. instead i look at you and i go oh my gosh well i could just change that that's no problem at all i don't i don't have to be attached to that bam just like that i don't have to be attached to my chair don't have to be embarrassed. Don't have to be uh, concerned about my um, sexual hangups from my early Catholic upbringing. I can actually tell you about them and we can go, oh, okay. And, and, and your partner's doing the same thing back or even a stranger who you happen to be taking this drug in the company of. Uh, there's an intimacy and a, it, it, you just stop being defended. You, you, just, you just don't go for it anymore. You just, it just goes away. Not all at once, not always the first time, not for everybody the same, but in general, that is simply what happened with that particular kind of nourishment, MDMA or so. So you've got these the two the two favorite mind altering chemicals. The third, of course, is uh, is an anesthesia of some kind. Uh, but those two address the issue of death most directly because number one. You got it that transforming over into an unknown is something that consciousness is capable of doing because you can do it with psychedelics, number one. And number two, you don't have to be afraid and defended. You can live in a kind of open, gentle, very ordinary, loving kindness. You know, when the Dalai Lama says, you know, the key to everything is just live with loving kindness. Take MDMA, put it in your mouth, swallow it, wait for an hour and a half, get through the next hour, which is a little intense sometimes. And, but at some point, you will go, oh, loving kindness. Oh, oh, loving kindness. Oh, not an activity, a state of being, my natural state of being. Oh, my God. How about that? So now when I think about dying, I go, well, I've been out and back already. So out and back. I don't know. I didn't know what it was going to be like the first time, but it's been magnificent the whole way. Number one and number two, I'm not afraid of anything. I mean, there's no interpersonal or experience that I can realistically be afraid of other than maybe pain. But then we even have a third category of stuff that will mostly take the pain away too. But that's not one of my specialties. <laughs> but anyway, I, I did want to talk about those two things because the two problems with death are I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe I'm going to end. And then the other one is, um, I'm scared. One of the drugs says, you don't have to be scared anymore. You are loving guns. The other one says, hey, you can trip anytime. It's cool. It's our nature. So my nature is to trip and my nature is to be in loving kindness. And so when the time comes for me to croak, I'm excited because it's an exploration and I feel the flowing of loving kindness. And that those two things, a, a willingness to be 100% open to the total alteration of your consciousness and to know that loving kindness is a place of extraordinary gentle strength that you can reside in, 
kind of resolves the issue. It makes it, it just, it just takes it out of the game as an issue and brings it back into the game as the one opportunity that no matter what your politics are or who bosses you around or whether you pay your taxes or not, you get to have, you get to die. Nobody can stop you. And if you're not afraid and you're already excited about journeying, tripping, that's the way it should be. And that's why we ought to be in community because if we were in community, we'd be, we would be sharing all of that. We'd, we'd be aware of all of that. It's only because we've hidden the dying away that, that we don't notice those two things, I think. The, the things you're saying are beautiful. They sound almost idealistic. <laughs> I, I find myself wondering what it was like for you knowing this deep wisdom that you just shared with us but being unable to share it with these thousands of people that came your way in the senior center, how did you deal with that? How did you deal with knowing you had something that would be so helpful to them and yet being legally unable to provide it for them? What a, what a profound question. Uh, um, I think that, that, uh, Certainly any of us who ended up with a career in the helping professions and uh, were psychedelically nourished at some point in our life, um, that the fact that we could not share that openly um, is, was experienced daily as a vast tragedy. <laughs> it's the only way that I can possibly say it. How, how could you live a whole lifetime, uh, you know, for 60 years knowing this and be so severely, threateningly limited in even being able to just share the facts with anybody? Um, is devastating. It was it was daily devastating. Now here's here's a trick, and I you know I'm I'm old enough now I can say this. And probably some people, if if they listen to this and knew all of my history and and all of that, we talked really openly at the senior center. I mean, I, I by that time I figured I wasn't going to be teaching anymore, and if if I had still been teaching, I would have had to maintain secrecy, or they wouldn't have let me teach. At the senior center, I was old. They were old. I was a manager. Uh, I wasn't a spiritual teacher. Uh, and we were all past the point where we had much of anything to lose. Uh, they weren't going to arrest me or fire me, particularly. Nobody cared anymore. You know, old, old people, nobody cares that much. So, so I was able to, we were able to talk pretty clearly. And, and because that generation of old people were my generation, we were the generation that started uh, started uh, eating psychedelic food, and and um, so you weren't really taking even you know even even if you were um, uh, sawmill uh, rednecks, 
you probably were smoking marijuana, which is a mild psychedelic, uh, by the time you got into the late part of your life because it was a hippie. You know, hippies had come. The hippies came. You continued to be a, a logger, but the hippies brought pot, psychedelics, and eventually MDMA. Not very many old people had taken MDMA, unfortunately, but it would actually have been the best drug, I think, of all for them to start on. But 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 the, lots of them smoked pot, and they, and they were all interested and very willing to to have conversations about that. The more exciting part of that story, however, is that during that that period of time, um, I I designed and and operated two schools and designed and operated psych programs, counseling programs inside a couple other immensely successful, very differently structured schools. One of the one of the essential natures of that school, right from the very very beginning, was I always made a deal with parents when the parents came to have their kids in school. That's great. We would show them everything we're doing. But one of the things I said was, you know, in school the kids can talk to us about anything they want to talk to us about, and we will keep their confidence, even though you would really like to know, but maybe shouldn't know what they're going to tell us. We have communicated them is that, is that unless we feel like there is a clear and present danger because of something that I know about you, I'm not going to blow the whistle on you. I'm going to listen and teach you as best I can and guide you as best I can. So the thing that I have that probably a lot of people don't have is I've got approximately 40 years of daily company, seven hours a day, with people between the ages of 15 and 25. and most of them were at one time or another during that period smoking pot and taking psychedelics. There's some, there was some idea that somehow during all this period of time, you know, I mean, definitely don't want, it's not, it's not healthy for high school age kids to be taking drugs. I don't know. I'm not even going to exercise an opinion. All I'm going to say is it didn't really matter. They were doing it anyway, just like you and I were doing it, even though it was against the law and you could get put in jail for it. They never stopped. They kept right on going. In most of their lives, there were maybe two or three adults they could maybe suggest that this might happen. Me and my staff were the only adults who were both experienced and, and to whom they could go and say, this happened that last Friday night at the party, so-and-so took two hits of acid. We told him it was too many. You know, Frank, he's kind of, and, and I know, I know Frank. And I, I would have said, Frank, you shouldn't be taking acid. See, you're not, you need to do a bunch of work and you need to be a lot older because of who you are and what's going on. They were safe in the truth. Because we told them, I'll blow the whistle if you're a danger to yourself. Otherwise, you can tell me anything you want to tell me, and I will just give you the best possible feedback. So I've heard the inside, day-by-day, weekend stories of, I don't know, 1,000, 1,500 young people over a period of 40 years. I get this vast amount of information about what it's like to grow up and approach adulthood and have this psychic nourishment available to you. Unfortunately, in the worst possible way, I never took drugs with any student. I never was stoned or high while I was working, period. And I never discussed my own personal experiences with students, but I listened 
hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times and intervened sometimes when I thought it was important and made suggestions about what to do and what not to do when I thought it was important or connected groups of students up with one another who I knew would take care of one another because some of them were being reckless. And that went on nonstop for 40 years. It's an amazing kind of information. So, so in both cases, and, and by the way, young, if young people who are taking psychedelics, they want to know about dying. They're, they, they don't, that's not a, a not to talk about. That's not a, a forbidden topic. That's not a non-interesting topic. If, if a young person takes psychedelics, they go, oh, you can get out of your mind and out of your feelings and out of your identity and live in a place where you aren't you anymore, but it's still someone there and you're still having a full range of experiences and you still have to navigate and you still have free will. And Sometimes I think, you know, when I was when I was in high school, I went to a Franciscan Catholic Franciscan high school and I, I spent half of my high school time in a seminary. I was gonna be a priest. And and um I was saying to them in my own way all the time, in today's vernacular, get me high. I wanna see God. And they were going, say prayers, learn this stuff. And I was looking at them and I was going, you're high, Father John, but you and you and you and you aren't high and you don't know about it and you act like you do. And they knew that difference. I remember, I remember once uh, when I was, I had left my quest for the priesthood and I was thinking maybe I needed to be a Protestant minister of some kind or something. And I went to the, the best one of those that I knew and we took a long walk late at night. He'd taken psychedelics and, 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 um, I said, it, when I was a, a Catholic in the seminary, I was told that, that, that God would speak directly to me and that there was a transmission that could come from the priest to me that would awaken this deep consciousness. I feel like I have been touching that with psychedelics. I want to be a teacher. I want transmission. I want you, my friend. Who, who was a Methodist minister, I want, I want you to answer this question. Can you transmit the magic, the sacramental magic? Can you tell me that you can transmit that magic to me? In which case, what do I have to do? Because that's all I want. And he, I remember his head going down. He went, uh, um, uh, no. And, and I got it that these were, these were people who were proposing that they could do what a pill could do, but they couldn't. In fact, they couldn't do it. When I, when I went to the whole, when I, when I took my Holy communion, when I, when I went to church, you know, when I did that, it was psychedelic. I, I, I would often have the experience of the presence of angelic beings in the church. I'd walk up there and, you know, in the Catholic Church in those days, you couldn't touch the little round wafer. You couldn't touch it because it was holy. It was sacramental. It was psychedelic. And, and the first time I took it at age six, I went out of my body and out of my mind and had an ecstatic, luminous experience. I literally had to literally help me get turned around and back to my seat and sit down. And that continued to be the case until my late adolescence when... Um, a lot of other things that's actually sex happened. And I went, oh my gosh, you can, you did also really good sex takes you right into that threshold too. 
So, and then I kind of went off in that direction, which didn't work well with the idea of being a priest. But or or maybe it does actually, or maybe it does. <laughs> so, in any case, to to me, the important thing. I mean, it's, it's like it's like if we died in community, with any luck at all, there'd be at least one or two of us around in the room who could hold hands and go, let's go out together for a little while. You relax. I'll go out. We'll go out together. And, and I would go to that holy place, that luminous place where um, loving kindness is not a thing you do. It's who and what you are, where the notion of multiple kinds of consciousness and, and regions of consciousness is as ordinary as anything could be. And there's no defense to the intimacy. And so when you're dying, who do you want to have there? You want, those are the things that you want. Somebody who's absolutely sure that consciousness is expansive, who's absolutely dwelling in loving kindness, and who has no problem with complete intimacy with you, whether, whether that means, you know, cleaning up the shit after you while you're in the process of dying or, or feeding you carefully with fingers or a spoon or just being there in complete silence or letting you scream and tear and hold on to you and at the same time meet you with complete peace and transparency. And that's what we all want. That's why we call for a minister. But unfortunately, we call for the minister and that same guy who said, transmit to you. I understand what you mean. No, I can't do that. I wish I could. The two groups, now, but, but you know, but you, you're doing you're doing a great job, magnificent. The uh, the two groups, the the young students, fifteen to twenty five, and the seniors, were the seniors as forthcoming with information about themselves as the students were, or were they more guarded? They were. Uh, there were two things. They were somewhat more guarded. Uh, I think just from a lifetime of of uh, decades of not being able to share without defensiveness and, and fear, um, and with having to deal with a, a culture that really wants you to be a certain way, uh, whether you want to be or not. I mean, those two things tended to, you know, after 70 years, it wears on you and you're kind of, you, you kind of, well, I don't know, you know, like that. But um, the closer people got to the end and the more I had been in intimate over lunch relationship with them, uh, the more they uh, shared. And for the most part, you know, I have to say that, that um, I didn't encounter a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety and a lot of tripping around about it. I mean, uh, people were were pretty clear that it was going to happen and that it was probably okay. And they often wanted to share stories and, and, and in their own way, uh, requested without saying so a kind of, of gentle caring and, and, um, and a touching and, a, and, and intimacy. Um, is it your impression, Charles, that they, shared stories about dying with one another or was it too public or too exposed or 
something that they were not accustomed to doing. I'm wondering whether sitting around with other people who are in also in transition lends itself to somebody saying at some point, hey, you know, we're all pretty close to dying. Let's talk about it a little bit. It's kind of like um, it's kind of like if you sat down at the table and, and you went, who wants to tell me the most intimate sexual experience you've ever had in your life? And and they kind of want to, but they're kind of not going to. Yeah. Maybe it's yeah. one-on-one and there's a reason. That's another topic for another time, but it's a topic. But it's the same. That... It's the same. But it's the same essay. It's, it's like I mean, yes. I guess it's, to me, it's not an accident that you can you can take psychedelics, you can meditate, you can play music, you can be a a, 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 a high class athlete, uh, and you can be uh, you can have sex and make love, and all of them move you in the direction of loving kindness, and um, the expandability of consciousness, all those things do. And so I think that's probably why talking about, you know, if you say, did anybody ever have a really intimate experience of somebody close to you dying? And would you share your, be- the best sex you ever had? Somehow there's there's in both cases, you kind of go, well, yeah, but no. And that's because they both touch the mystery. They, they both touch the holy. They both touch the the consciousness is huge, and I am undefended in loving kindness. Let's you and I talk about our age. I'm, 80, <laughs> I'm going to be 84 next month. I know. You're older than me, but I'm, that's how okay. much? What, what am I, 20 <laughs> years old? How, you're, 80, you're 81? 81, yeah. Yeah. And do you think about dying? Is it a topic I, that takes it's on your radar screen, or to what extent? Yeah, uh, yeah. I the what's interesting about about my thinking about dying is that ninety percent of my my thinking about dying has to do with the potential hardship that it will impose on my most beloveds. Uh, I don't. I don't even know. I mean, it doesn't ever, it, 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 for a long time now, it just hasn't occurred to me to have any, I don't have any, I, I have curiosity and a wonder. Um, but, but my concerns are that, that, you know, I want to leave messes behind. I want my, 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 my primary partner, my dear beloved, um, it just got experienced, uh, her tending her mom, uh, during her death, yes, and, and her her grieving afterwards, it continued grieving the, the the missing, the loss of of a really beloved one, and they were so beloved to each other. Yes, I can hardly stand the idea that my family or my friends would suffer. I mean, <laughs> they. That kind of suffering that grabs you by the heart just won't let you go and just turns you inside out. I believe there's some deep purpose to that, but nevertheless, I do not want to be the occasion or the instrument for that because I, yes. I've watched it and experienced it, and it's way worse than dying. I mean, grieving is grieving, dying is nothing compared to grieving. Yes, exactly. Yes. So, so when I think about about dying, um. I want everybody else to die first. I don't want to go afterward 
because I don't want anybody to be burdened by my leaving. Uh, and if everybody else went, that would be okay because it's still the same. I'm still here in loving kindness uh, on the occasion of an infinitely expandable consciousness. And nothing, nothing would change except that I would be relieved of the responsibility of dying and that being the occasion of someone else's grief. One of the ways I'm dealing with that issue, that very exact same issue of concern for my close ones, is by having something in my will regarding having a party and a celebration and, 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 and celebrating my life and really doing it and having a good time and for, the, and for me to say to them in words that I, I want you to be happy knowing that I had a happy life and that you were part of my life and that you brought me so much happiness. In yep. some way, it, right, yep. you see what I'm doing, in some way well, trying to, to soften what it is that you're talking about. The other, the other thing, Richard, is that um, the, uh, the pain, that, that when we grieve, it's like concentrated love. It's not unrequited love, because the leaving uh, was not to leave me. Yes. So um, it, 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 there's the loss of the presence of the person and all that, all that sort of thing. But I haven't, and, um, since, my, since my mother died when I was 25, 26, um, I haven't really grieved. That was about the same time that I started exploring psychedelics. And... Um, and seriously, becoming a serious student of consciousness in all of its varieties, studying it in all the ways that I can, and being in essence, um, no, I, I was, I am not, was not a quote a spiritual teacher. And I, even though I was a therapist for a little while, I wasn't really a psychotherapist in the deep sense that 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 you are. And I wasn't really a minister, and I wasn't really a priest, so I didn't have any of those. I wasn't. None of those really official things. I was a I was a teacher and an educator, but we weren't supposed to even talk about or have any experiences about any of those kinds of things, even though we were the official teachers. So um I, I had quickly developed a non-sense of deep loss when someone died. It just didn't they just weren't here anymore and this is where i wasn't because i would go to bed and i'd have dreams i mean some people have vivid dreams some people actually have visions or they hear a loved one or you know i mean they, they, i'm just uh my my daughter-in-law just gave me a book a whole book of stories I, I, like that by a person who does did the age regression uh hypnosis um, and, and collected um, near-death experience stories. And, of course, we know there's thousands and thousands. Of them, and they bear a similarity across cultures and, and all that sort of thing. Um, but it wasn't, it, it wasn't because of that. It was because um, I ceased being um, captured by my identity. I realized that, that, that vast amounts of it were inherited and relatively arbitrary and could be changed pretty much at a blink of an eye if I wasn't afraid. Just, um, you know that completely. I mean, you know that it is possible for somebody at a given moment to go, 
okay, then I'll just be like this and not be like that anymore. And agreed, agreed. You know, that wouldn't that be a great a great book in exploration? What is it that makes that moment of realization stick? Because sometimes it sticks. Period. It's done. It's a done deal. A lot yeah. of times it doesn't. But but if as a therapist or teacher, if I knew how to constellate the thing that makes that stick, that would be uh-huh. it. That'd be that. That'd be that the gift I want. But in any case, um, I don't grieve, and so. It's okay with me, and in fact, my desire would be for everybody else to die first, because I would miss them, but I wouldn't grieve their absence, because they would still be this incredible promise and inexhaustible range. One of my closest friends in the world died about a year ago. I don't know if you met him, David Geisinger, Uh, but in any event... Uh, he died. He was in a swimming pool with his wife on a vacation, and she looked over at him, and all of a sudden, he was gone. He was gone. Different from all my other friends, and we've had many people die. Jolie and I made up a list of how many people we know that have died just in the last 10 years, and when we got to 30, we stopped, we stopped keeping the list. It was just too much list. It was not fun. Right. And other good close friends have died. And what I notice with myself is the closer they are that I've been with them, the more I keep them with me. Absolutely. So I relate one fellow, Jim Guinan, was in Ohio, and David was down in Marin County, California. And it's not that I saw them so often to begin with because of the geographic distance. So I was used to relating to them via distance, <laughs> via, the, via the experiences of our lives together. I was used to relating to the them that I carried within me. And so when these two gentlemen have died, for me, I'm keeping them because I'm keeping the them that I've had with me all these years and still relating. Now, I'm not delusional. I know I'm not going to go to Ohio and find Jim or Marin and find uh, David. But when I'm not in those areas, I find it quite easy to continue to relate to them. And even, absolutely, right? Absolutely. And I can have a little conversation. And if I stretch a little bit, I know what they're going to say in response to, uh, very often, but not always, because that's what kept the the, the friendship so interesting, right. that they would come up with things that hadn't been said before, of course. I think that that um, this, this is a, 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 a subtle thing about dying, um, but it's... It, uh, once again, rooted in in psychedelic or sacramental experience, uh, those are the same word to me. I mean, a genuine sacrament and a psychedelic is a, is the same. It's it's an external thing you do that brings about an internal transformation. And I say internal only because this this part this this is is what I call external. In the internal, the internal is flighty and and ephemeral and 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 uh, immense. But it also is highly meticulously structured. It's not it's not amorphous. I mean, the inside is not amorphous any more than the outside is amorphous. 
so so the the that that inner part when when it when it's time to die it's not that charles body my meat body here it, it's not that there's this other um it's just it's not that there's just this other less dense part it's not like there's not like another charles which if you had, you know, kind of mysterious ephemeral eyes that you could see it, it's glowy and it's about the same shape and size like the spirit <laughs> or the soul or something like that. And, 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 and it's, it's in here, it's, a, it's in the material. And when we die, it leaves the material and it goes somewhere else. And the somewhere else is kind of a mystery. Well, what I want to say is it's not a mystery. You always dwell in the somewhere else. Where do you think in? Where do you feel in? I don't really feel or think with my body. I mean, I, you know, do I think with, we like to say, well, I think with my brain. You could just as easily say, I think with my cheek skin or my beard hair. <laughs> doesn't make any sense. So you say, oh, well, actually, I think with my brain. Really? That makes as much sense as saying, I think with my nose hairs. There's, there's no reason to, there is reason because, you know, somebody says, well, yeah, but if I alter your brain chemistry, then your thoughts change. And I say, yeah, and if you pull my nose hair, my thoughts change. I feel pain, but. Well, I got to call you on that one. I mean, if you pull your nose hair, you change, but 10 minutes later, you're back. You do something to your brain destructive. 10 minutes later, you might not be back. That's true, but but I think the point the, the point that I really want to make is that we live in the space of consciousness. It, 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 I'm not sure it's one or the other. If anything, I would say my body and the material world is one component mm -hmm. of consciousness. Mm -hmm. right. But it's not the only component of consciousness, for God's sake. I have yeah. I have a huge content that has nothing to do with my body, my nose hairs, the lake my computer or anything else. And they're absolutely real. And I can go to them on any given day or night. I could go visit them tomorrow. I can think my way in. I can feel my way. We have a whole, we have this vast vocabulary. Uh, you know, I imagine, I project, I reflect, I cogitate, I contemplate, I meditate. I, we, we have this huge vocabulary for describing something that does not happen in the external world in the material world. I have a great vocabulary for that too, complete with scientific laws, and it's all absolutely real, just like other, all of the mental part, the mind part, the, the, uh, the inner world, the consciousness part is also absolutely real and structured, and you can't do anything you want, but, you, but within the parameters of wherever in there in consciousness you're working out, certain things are accessible, other things aren't. You have bad or positive experiences and so on. But my point just is that, that dying is not um, a situation where the airy soul leaves the material body and the material world and goes to uh, some slightly different extrapolation of that and stays airy and the trees are a little more airy and the lake is a little more it's not like that at all it's just exactly like it is right now you know if i if i go i always used to say to my students when they would go oh, i would say look at my eyes right now look right exactly right directly inside my eyes okay can you see in i said no i 
look at the bookcase and the books over there. Look at the bookcases. Look at it really hard. Now come back and look in my eyes. Something different going on completely, isn't there? Of course. Because when you look at my eyes, you are we are sharing inner consciousness. When I look at the books and the bookcase, that mm -hmm. doesn't happen. Therefore, non-material is existent and accessible all the time. And it's in relationship, what we call relationship, where we are permeable to each other in the same way if I reach around and hug you, it's not that I have my sensations and they end right at the surface of my body. And then there's this, your skin, and we're hugging, and we're naked. And your skin is right up against my skin. And there's a little layer right in there where it isn't exactly touching and so on. But we have this mutual experience where, you know, when, when we're touching. When I say, look over at the, look at the bookcase. Now look back at my eyes. Oh, look in there. Oh, for heaven's sake. And, you know, my kids would always go, oh, I get it. I get it. Yep, I get it completely. <laughs> and, and, and so dying is dancing along that, that most ordinary experience we have of the material and the non-material. Charles, <laughs> lost. the, the physical that, what... continuity, so far as we can tell, seems to be lost. Even, even for those people who who, uh, you know, in surgery or in an accident or something, have an out-of-the-body experience. Um, if you say to them, we, they, I mean, they can see what's going on. I mean, lots of reports of somebody floats up to the top of the operating room and watch the surgeon do the operation. We've got thousands of accounts <laughs> right. of that. I mean, that's not a novel account, okay? So once you have that kind of experience, you get it that... Um, Leaving is leaving, but there isn't something that leaves. It's just that the region is way larger than the one that you're no longer in anymore. But you were in it before you died. Mm -hmm. I get it. I've yeah. got to stop you here, Charles. We're okay. running stop. out of time. But I have one last question for you. Shoot. Are you planning on taking a psychedelic at the time of your transition like Huxley did? And if so, what would you take and how much of it would you take? Well, my drug of choice is, is, uh, is always LSD. And the, and the main reason for that is that the, the other major psychedelic drugs uh, are all deeply rooted in, in various indigenous cultures, mescaline and, and uh, you know, mescaline and, uh, from cactus and, and psilocybin from, from the mushroom. LSD um is my it's it's my club it's my culture's psychedelic mm -hmm. so i don't really need to duplicate uh, an american indian uh meeting uh, uh mescaline uh peyote cactus meeting mm -hmm. um I have my own. And so that would definitely be my drug of choice. Just like if i was a member of the american uh, indian church uh, i would i would take cactus. I would, eat, I would eat cactus. So psychedelics is my natural one. And, and then I just would uh, do what Shogun always said, which was always have some MDMA around in case it isn't pleasant, because that'll take care of that. Thank you. You're welcome. That's a, it's been really wonderful being with you today, Charles, as always. Absolutely, Richard. I love the work you're doing. I just love it. I listen to it every weekend. It's magnificent. 
It's the oh, voice thanks, that we've Charles. talked about that we needed for so long. Somebody to go right out in the world and say, listen, this is real. This has been happening all along. You, we have to tell our story. Thank you. Rest You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you, gentle listeners, for joining us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, when we've had philosopher and educator Charles Bush with us. Go to my website, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You can listen to some of the archives that Charles was just mentioning. You might want to take a look at my latest book, Psychedelic Wisdom. Tune in again next week. We go live every Tuesday at 9 o'clock in the morning, and the archives are always available for you on the website. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm.